And uh, do you know how trees know that it's fall? Oh no! Is it like? Is there like some kind of chemical, something or? No, it's their leaves that fall off. Hey! <laughs> 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 they know no, it's fall because good. all their leaves are falling off. That's pretty good. Oh, yeah, that's it's pretty good. funny. Uh, Alexander oh, Prince, uh, shout out to uh, a, a real one, um, w- at, raised an important question. Um, is fall just one big pride flag? Mm. Whoa. Uh, well, where's the like purple and blue? And what are they? I guess the called? sky's blue. Purple and blue. Yeah. yeah. It's usually gray this time of year, although lately it's been blue. It's been very pretty. Yeah. Yeah, it has. But the trees haven't really been bringing their best. No. They're Subpar. not. Yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not bringing their best. If I was a leaf peeper, <laughs> I'd be pretty pissed. I want my money back. I mean, we haven't hit peak leaf peeping season yet. What is that? Like mid-October? Yeah. Like, it's, it should be in the next so like... Next week or two? Yeah. Which So I'm probably going to miss at least the first couple of days of it. Well, you're going to be, gone. you're going to be, so be watch, watching it along the, the high... Uh, I'm going to be in this... I'm going south though. So I'm not oh, probably going to... Till Tuesday. Ah. But probably the trip up on Tuesday will be nice. Yeah. So, this is all super interesting stuff. I'm going to be on a train for a few days, so... Yeah, uh, and if anybody uh, who lives in upstate New York um, hasn't taken the train uh, down to the city and sat on the scenic side, which is the river-facing side, uh, and looked out the window for, like, you know, the two- or three-hour ride, uh, do it. Super it, gorgeous. It's, it's really nice. Amazing. Um, if you go in really early spring, I think it's really early spring, uh, uh, all the bald eagles are there. Mm. And, like, I saw, like, 20 bald eagles on nice. a trip down once. It, yeah. it was wild. There, there's yeah. a whole family. I never felt so patriotic. It was really <laughs> quite moving. There's a whole family of bald eagles um, that live on the, uh, where the Hudson Mohawk uh, meet. And it just so happens to be, like, my bike uh, ride goes right through it. And so it's quite often that, like, on my bike ride, I can, like, look up and there's, like, a bald eagle, like, flying, like, 20, 30 feet above my head. Flying cover for you. Yeah. Or yeah. I, I, I sometimes feel like... It, it, a little threatened by them because they're like really big birds it's a big and animal. like you know i don't think it would really want to fuck with me but if it if it wanted to um i don't know if there's much i could do to uh not get pretty uh i don't know wounded <laughs> at the minimum so what were you taking the train into new york for chris oh uh, i was uh <laughs> I was going down to protest the eco side that is ongoing and uh, will continue for the rest of my natural life. Oh, um, <laughs> you didn't come back with a newfound sense of optimism about ending this shit? No, no, oh, <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, but I, uh, I had a lot of time to think about pretty much nothing but that situation uh, and a lot of time to discuss that situation that we find ourselves in with a lot of people who also care about it a lot. That's good. Uh, which was pretty cool. Um, so, uh, there's this group called Extinction Rebellion and, um, they are a pretty nascent environmental movement, if you could (laughs) call it that, you know, um, it's probably like 300-ish people that were involved in actions uh, during the week of rebellion from uh, Monday, the October 7th uh, through uh, today, uh, I think, which is the 10th, right? Uh, Thursday? 
or, or yeah, 11th. Um, and so they were um, down in Washington Square Park, and this was part of a global um, week of rebellion where they have Extinction Rebellion chapters, if you will, uh, in Europe and uh, in Australia, I think, as well. Um, and basically, these are people who are uh, coming together to do acts of nonviolent civil disobedience um, in uh, protest of uh, mostly government inaction uh, in the face of the climate crisis that uh, is getting worse by the day. And that, you know, most of uh, the IPCC uh, reports tend to be as conservative as possible with it because it's uh, peer-reviewed science and there needs to be you know a lot of evidence and it takes a long time to get through the process and so uh, when i was first asked to be involved in this uh action uh by a really rad friend of mine christian um who's like just doing the most like doing in my opinion like the most uh you know what do the buddhists call it like right way of life or whatever you know the eightfold path um, he's like, in my opinion, like living life pretty right. He, um, you know, spends a lot of time with his children and his partner, um, and then is farming, urban gardening, putting in, uh, perennial, uh, fruit and nut trees, like everywhere, like in like little side lots and, um, worked a lot with me on the Colorado city grower garden. Um, it was just super rad dude. Um, and very like optimistic and, and, you know, forward thinking about the future. And he, you know, uh, was like, Hey, like I'm trying to get a contingency going, like, let's see, or, you know, um, a group, like an affinity group going, um, to, uh, go down and do this action. And so, I was like, all right, sure. Like, what's the action? He's like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go down there and like protest and like get arrested probably. And I was like, what? Dude, you got two kids. Like, what do you, he's like, dude, like what, nothing else is working. Like these climate marches are ignored, you know, like uh, the governments are just going to do whatever they're going to do. And like, you know, capitalism is just going to keep marching on. So the least I can do is like go be disruptive and like a thorn in the side of like the state and capital. Um, and I was like, all right, well, you know, <laughs> you got more to lose than I do. You know, I don't have children or anything. So I was like, yeah. yeah. So I took, uh, three days off of, um, uh, the week this week, um, my last three uh, unscheduled, uh, vacation days. And I took the train down on uh, Saturday morning and spent some time, um, going over like the sort of the action plan. And then on Monday I had like two gallons of fake blood that, uh, you know, I poured out on the uh, entrance to the New York Stock Exchange. What uh, was the blood made out of? It was uh, caro syrup and okay. uh, chocolate syrup, a lot of red food dye. Uh, it was very visceral and uh, visually convincing. Um, and it was very, very sticky. Yes. Um, I know this because uh, it very quickly dried and uh, like lots of parts of my clothes and hair and everything else um, uh, were, you know, covered in it. Um, cause they, we had like these squibs, like with like little, um, uh, balloons full of it, as well as, um, I had, you know, risked higher charges, I'm using air quotes here, uh, which I had expected to put me for overnight in what they call the tombs. So there's like two ways that the SRG or the strategic response group of the NYPD, uh, typically responds to mass arrests and protests and stuff. And it's like, you either get a, what's called like a violation. So like blocking traffic or something like that. And, uh, you were held like at one police plaza or, you know, someplace similar, relatively low security, um, and released typically within like 12 or 14 hours. Um, and then if you have higher charges, uh, like 
anything like a misdemeanor or a felony or anything like that, they hold you for at least 24 and then they hold you at this place called the tombs, which I don't really know because I've never been in it. Um, but I actually got held at the same place that I was held when I wasn't trying to get arrested uh, eight years and like three days before uh, when there were like 758 or so people who were tricked to, into walking onto the uh, roadway during the, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge uh, protest uh, march for Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. Yeah. So I was 23 then and um, I got put in a like holding cell with like two other people, one of which wasn't even a protester. And that, that was, I felt bad for that guy because, like, he basically just made its way onto the road because, like, he was going to Brooklyn and he, he you know, had his bike and stuff. And, um, yeah, they basically blocked both sides of the road off and then kettled us with, like, orange netting and arrested us one by one. It took, like, six hours. Um, and then, you know, we spent another, like, eight or nine hours in, uh, in the holding cell. Um, and this time they put me in what's called the drunk tank. So there's, like, this you know, maybe twice the size of this room with a bunch of seats and stuff, um, uh, room. And there were probably like 75 people, but I felt bad for the, um, the women activists because they were put in, uh, holding cells like I was eight years before. And it was a lot less fun for them because in, um, the, you know, drunk tank, uh, holding cell, we basically, um, you know, practice Tai Chi <laughs> and like talked, uh, we had like these really like intimate talks, uh, with each other, like we broke off into groups, uh, which felt a little weird. It was like sort of like teacher, like telling us to all like do this thing, like kind of icebreakery kind of thing. But then once we were doing it, it was just like really um, heavy and emotionally intensive. And uh, I shed some tears and I watched a whole bunch of grown men um, grieve uh, for the ecocide and for a changing climate that isn't going to get better uh, within their or likely uh, their children's lifetimes. And it was the first time that I had ever actually witnessed that. Um, you know, like I feel a lot of uh, grief and loss and uh, anxiety about the condition of our ecosystem and, you know, guilt for just the, you know, one of 300 and some odd million person in America's average lifestyle, you know, contributive effect to, to it. And, you know, just knowing that um, the root cause is uh, our way of life and that, uh, especially with capitalism, we need to perpetually grow the consumption and production of all things uh, indefinitely. And that while this uh, system, you know, um, has control over what we do as a species, it's only going to keep getting worse. Um, so it was really heavy, though, to witness um, other people's grief. Like, that had never happened uh, for me. Um, and, yeah, it was just super moving and uh, intense. So, um, so Chris, what? Um, there's a lot of talk on the Twitters, right, mm -hmm. about uh, the, the way that uh, Extinction Rebellion goes about its work. Because, like you said, or I guess what Christian said to you, right, is that... Uh, the marches aren't doing anything. They're easily ignored. Like, I remember going to the science march, like, way back when. Yeah, uh, or climate like, marches. Like, like yeah. Trump is mad at the scientists. We have to save science or whatever. And, uh, you know, and, and even, like, this last climate march or, like, this strike that students uh, went yeah, on yeah, for the, the climate. Yeah, you know, like, I, 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 uh, I went to that and gave 
my students the opportunity to go to that too. And I met some students there that were like really ready to fuck some stuff up. Yep. Uh, and we're pretty mad that we weren't. Yep. Right. And uh, <laughs> all, all I, relatable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's relatable stuff, <sighs> relatable content. But um, uh, I guess like some people's, and I, 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 to be honest, like what you said about the drunk tank also makes me feel like these, these arrests also aren't, enough oh yeah right? no absolutely not yeah absolutely not i mean and, like and it really kind of does beg the question you know like what is enough and i guess it's really just revolution i guess i don't i don't know what the hell this is Brittany. do you do you know what what to do next yeah you solve climate change for us <laughs> please um i mean this is really a th th it's like very difficult for me to talk about because i actually think that climate change is i have found myself the older i get like slipping closer and closer to nihilism mm -hmm. and that really terrifies me because mm -hmm. i never was uh i was always very kind of idealist mm -hmm. and um now i feel like a cynicism creeping in yeah and i think that climate change is a huge part of that yeah. because i do feel so incredibly powerless and so for me so i have panic disorder and i can't part i i tried to i participated in occupy um, Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Albany to some extent, but that was actually when I discovered that uh, protesting really significantly triggers my panic disorder. And so since then, it's it's difficult for me to engage in a lot of conventional activism. So um, I think that part of, like, I, I think things like Extinction Rebellion and a lot of other marches can be quite cathartic for people who have this, um, all of this energy and this kind of emotional investment in something that they also feel both complicit in and powerless to do anything significant about. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of these kind of mass actions can, even if they may not necessarily affect the type of change that their participants ultimately want to see, they can be cathartic events, mm -hmm. you know, and they serve that purpose. And I, th I think that that in and of itself is a valuable purpose. And I, uh, being unable to partake in that, I often feel and I feel that way with a lot of activism is that so much of the activism that is done is just stuff that I can't participate in. Mm. And that has led me, I think, as I the older I get, to be like increasingly kind of uh hopeless and and feeling like deeply powerless about any of it. I also really do wish that a lot of activism or like if specific events or actions more clearly articulated what the very material goal at the end of it would be mm -hmm. right because otherwise like this is what happened with the the student climate strike where it was like if you ask people well what is this for what is it supposed to do it was like well we're demanding uh, action on climate change yeah and it's like that sets you up for disappointment right because you go there and you're like okay we said our stuff but to who right and like and, and, and like, what nothing... the fuck is action on climate change right yeah like, really the, yeah right know? yeah we, well and like... yeah that's uh, yes and that's totally correct but that in and of itself is part of the larger problem yeah. of what would you even demand right. yeah. what can be demanded yeah. Yeah. there yeah. is no yeah. i mean if i'm being perfectly sincere in mm. answer to your question like what can be done nothing can be done by us like there is no action that I think anybody in this room or anybody who's listening to this. And I say this with all sincerity and I would love for somebody to, to convince me otherwise, but I sincerely think that there's nobody on this planet who has less than a billion dollars who can do fuck all about this problem. And so like that, you know, to me is, um, why so many of these things are a very easy to criticize for people who are more comfortable problematizing things and being complacent than they are. Um, interested in doing like something that's hard and uncomfortable, but I 
I do also think that's where a lot of that uh, criticism comes from. It is that feeling of powerlessness, I think. Well, yeah. And also there's a lot of problematic stuff with Extinction Rebellion. I mean, you know, sure. like, so, you know, I'm on the Twitters now, uh, now that we're doing this podcast, I'm trying to promote it and sort of, you know, um, you know, make connections with other people who are doing similar type of media and uh, networking, I guess. And uh, so I see a lot of the takes. I see a lot of the um, criticism uh, that's warranted. Right? We're out there looking at the takes. <laughs> yeah. Taking and, them in. And, Taking uh, in the takes. You know, um, I think in answer to, you know, your earlier uh, sort of question about like, what was the expected material goal, right, from, from this action or even Extinction Rebellion in general? It's, uh, according to Extinction Rebellion, mobilizing one to three percent of the population for systemic change as vague and as um, sort of idealistically optimistic and sort of insanely outside of its scope and size um, of an organization and, and movement. Um, that's what they're trying so, to do. Yeah, so I did see that, but it's not clear to me, and maybe they have clarified this elsewhere and I just haven't seen it, but what exactly is 3% of the population? What is, what is mobilizing 3% of the population do? Like, Very good question. So, um, um, so the, the four demands, I guess, that, um, XR is trying to make, and I guess they're not trying to make it necessarily for government, um, but for, I guess, all of us, um, is one, tell the truth, uh, which I guess implies know the truth, research it, like figure out what the, uh, science has to say, uh, both in terms of the worst case, uh, assessment of where we're at as well, and, you know, the, what I was pointing out earlier, which is a pretty conservative statement, like the IPCC, uh, which is, explains why they're, you know, the, the line is always like, oh, the, the Arctic's melting faster than scientists, you know, had expected. Well, the reason that that's always happening faster than science is expecting is that like, it's an overly conservative sort of like, I hopeful, optimistic take, like anytime the IPCC actually puts anything out as dire and fucked up as like all of their reports actually are. Um, so yeah, one, tell the truth Two, act now. Good question. What is acting? Yeah, so right. acting up, I guess is one thing. And so like, you know, splashing a bunch of blood on the entrance to the wall, uh, stock exchange, um, uh, homies, uh, from Troy actually, I think are still being held in the tombs right now, uh, for an action that happened on Thursday where they glued themselves to a wooden boat that was in the middle of Times Square just to like shut down traffic. And, uh, it's so, like Jack McGuy, Jesse Marshall, um, a couple other, uh, people from Troy, I believe are like still being held, uh, in that, for that, um, uh, action and then three is citizen assembly which is once again a demand of us to assemble and decide what we should do about the fact that we are in a climate crisis that threatens the very existence of complex life on earth um and then four is just transition which is to say like we could do a lot of things right and that the fourth demand of this movement is like what we do um it has to be just which is to say like we can't you know, kill all the people on the planet. Uh, we can't, you know, ship just the... kill like literally five of them. <laughs> we can't, like, uh, <laughs> we can't, you know, like shift. I'm not the... saying which five. I'm not yeah. saying which five. We... So you can't, allegedly. you can't, yeah, yeah, allegedly. yeah, allegedly five. Yeah, we can't just like build walls and keep out, you know, the massive amounts of climate refugees that are, you know, uh, destined to happen. You know, um, and 
so yeah, that's four point platform. It's very vague. It's very small. Uh, this started with like about 100, 200 people in London and like the UK. And now it's like 10,000 ish in <clears throat> Europe and it's like bigger in most other countries. Um, and so New York, it was like about 300 this week, uh, which was actually, in my opinion, like pretty good turnout. Like that was about my experience with like early Occupy, which at its height ended up mobilizing 0.01% of the population or about 35,000 people. And so when I was thinking about getting involved in this action, whether it would be worth my while at all, or, you know, there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, things I could say about it critically, but um, what, a couple things went through my mind. One is like, okay, these people are, you know, singing chants about loving cops and like doing it for their children. And like you were just saying earlier that one of the guys who got arrested, like sent flowers to the local police department. and was like, thank you for your professionalism. And there's like a lot of criticism of like bootlicking you can justifiably make within the organization, but it's like trying to be explicitly about like love and self sacrifice to, you know, sort of Jesus, like turning the other cheek kind of Gandhi, like, you know, love thy enemy type of, mentality as it relates to any if they even understand the police as an enemy um and uh when, when, and i haven't read this criticism but it's something that i was thinking about when reading other criticisms of it is that like there's something inherently like distasteful to me that you would um sing songs to the cops about loving them while you're spraying corn syrup all over the ground that a state worker has to clean up you know, you know? So it's th like... there's there's a, a trade-off there because one was that there was a cleanup crew that uh followed directly behind us that was xr and they did their damnedest to be able to clean it up and they were shoot away so that's one part of it. Well, and, yeah. And, 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 and secondly, um, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the loving cop shit didn't happen in New York. That was, yeah, well, I'm talking, like, I'm talking specifically about the London oh, actions, oh, which was like what I was reading blood about everywhere. and like, yeah, spraying blood everywhere and like, uh, blocking like, but like commuter buses yeah. from people getting to work. Like yeah. that's not those people who you're blocking. Like a lot of the people who are taking the bus in London, they can't fucking afford to miss a day of work. Oh, like I that's, hear you. Yeah. So, I, and I know that these are not like new criticisms no, to you or anything. No, they're, but they're, they're to very me, valid. We should be and, talking and like about that, them. When that bumps up, so that yeah. in and of itself is a problem. But mm -hmm. when it bumps up against people sending cops flowers <laughs> and understand. thanking them for their professionalism, for some reason to me, it like magnifies the distastefulness yeah, of that I, I and totally, i'm gesturing a lot you yeah, can't see me no. at home like well but. Th this is essentially the thing right so as problematic as those elements can be like i have a couple counter points which is like what the fuck else are you supposed to do the system is set up so that if you disrupt you're going to be hurting the worst paid hardest uh in this our society Absolutely. And in the only other situation is like direct violence or property destruction to the rich, like directly. And like one of the things is like, yeah, the rich are more responsible than working people. Right. But there's only a certain amount of them. But and OK, my but it, my, it, my because we talked about okay, this yeah. off mic, but yeah, like yeah. my pushback to that is that unless you are accomplishing at least something material, mm -hmm then really to me it's it's even worse than like kind of screaming into a void it's it's um materially harming the people who are most vulnerable in our in our population and my point is there's no way to not do that and if there is please tell me like well, uh, you know, hold, hold on so 
as problematic as all of this stuff is, like whether it's a climate march that accomplishes nothing, that might be cathartic for somebody, they might pat themselves on the back about it, whether it's me shutting down uh, the entrance to the New York Stock Exchange, making a a mess that, you know, somebody else has to clean up because I'm in jail, Um, whether it's people blocking traffic, which is like Times Square, like, yeah, I guess there could be some people who are like going to service work, they're going to be late, you know, et cetera. But like, it is a good excuse. Like traffic is stopped because of this giant action. And um, there's no way to do system disruption that isn't going to hurt the people who are the most vulnerable. That yeah. is just a fact. And so the question is, should that be keeping us from system disruption? And if system disruption, the, the disruption of the status quo and business as usual is understood to be a requirement of like getting people to like wake up to like how fucked we are and going to be increasingly fucked if we don't take system change very seriously, then like, I don't know. But that, like, but I think here's, that, but I, yeah. and I hear you, I mm-hmm. hear you, but I think the thing that you're not addressing that I'm trying to kind of bring home is that this mode of system disruption mm-hmm. does not actually accomplish anything materially meaningful for the problem that it purports to address. Yeah. Like it does many, not it's, it's disrupt too, any commerce. It does not. Well, it the does, only, you know, in a way, but, uh, but, but like it would need to be ma- much, much more massive and much more disruptive. What commerce thus, does it dis- like? What, like, what commerce does it disrupt other than just people like getting to working class jobs? I don't know. Like the New York Stock Exchange, people not being able to get in. At least that was the goal of the action, you know, like the. So you were talking earlier about um, the uh, actions of uh, organized labor. Right. And that makes a lot of sense. Right. Because like you can strike uh, from a job and like shut down production. Yeah. Which, you know, is commerce and it directly affects the, the uh, profit of capital. Um but at the same time, striking hurts workers, right? And, Depending on the conditions, yeah, yeah sometimes, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that <clears throat> the system is set up that any disruption is going to victimize a bunch of people, right? But, like, what's the cost of not doing anything? And, well, but, and what would be the better thing? Because if there is a better thing, let's get Extinction Rebellion to do it, right? But, like, I'm sitting there trying to think about all this stuff, reading all these, you know, uh, economic and political theory books and trying to like wrap my head around, you know, the problem with a capital P um, that we find ourselves in. And, you know, considering myself like pretty radical, right? Like I'm an anarchist. I've been, you know, sort of uh, anti-state, anti-capital for a while, uh, but I'm existing within capitalism, like just like everyone else is. And I see these libs, these, you know, cop loving libs, right? Um, Shutting down roads, getting arrested and, they're doing more to keep climate change and the ecological crisis in the news on people's lips um, than I am. And so I was thinking like, well, I could snipe from afar or I could go down there and try to try and talk with everybody about how we, it needs to be explicitly anti-capitalist, about how it needs to have more class solidarity, all this other shit. And so I, I did. And it turns out they already know this. Obviously, most of the people who are willing to put their bodies on the line and get arrested and spend time in you know, really uncomfortable and scary situations um, are dumb. And that there's like a bunch of, you know, you could call it leadership or whatever. But I think it's just the things that make the news. I think that really like uh, Extinction Rebellion is pretty decentralized in all of the really important ways. Like it's a very small organization right now. And like if there's a way to, um, you know, do what it's trying to do, which is to say 
raise greater uh, you know, awareness of the severity of the ecological crisis that we're in to try and motivate, just get the gears working in people's minds. This is all going to end anyway. That's like the other thing is like we are fucked like capitalism is going to fall under its own pretenses and the ecological situation is only going to become increasingly more dire. And so, yeah, it sucks making people late to work. It sucks keeping people from being able to pick up their kids. Like the flows of traffic is like how the little people and the big people get everything done. And like stopping the flows is a very uh, contentious issue. And I understand it. Um, but like the house is on fire and it's not going, we're not going to be saved by the rich. We're not going to be saved by our nation states. We're not going to be saved by the global corporations that run all of our commerce. It's if we're going to be saved. And I think that you're, you know, factually grounded in a realistic perspective to be cynical in this time. Um, it's going to have to be on us taking individual action and uh, risk and like, you know, owning up to it to a to degree. So um, I, I, I'm not sure we're going to come to a conclusion. We're obviously not going to come to a conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah it's, climate change is going to keep going on for a whole while. It's a huge problem. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do think like, you know, like what, what we mentioned about like striking, hurting people. And there is like, it's a good, it's actually a very good example of how the system is set up to uh, hurt the most, most vulnerable, right? Where you like have like the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 that makes it so that, you know, like pension funds can't be used uh for like a uh, strike funds while while you're going on strike so it makes it harder to go on strike stuff like that uh but the 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 good thing though is that like th these are all uh consensual decisions that organize that's the the organized and organized labor right like they're all organized and they vote uh, to, to strike and then like everyone is consensually decided to kind of fuck their lives up for a couple of weeks uh -huh. in order to uh, for a bigger fucking up of someone else's life, right? And and, and that somehow helps uh, the system. And I, I still kind of I, I still agree with Brittany though that like I I don't know. There's something about like our the the deviousness of our attention economy that um, bringing like you said climate change to the lips of people, uh, like like keeping it on people's lips and keeping attention to it um, does more to. Uh, dig people in further into either not believing it maybe. or or uh, just being or like wanting to roll coal on someone like the Prius yeah, or something like that I, I, that I don't think we we've invented yet the intervention to uh, to really like make systemic change. I, yeah. st I still don't feel like that's been and, and maybe, invented yet. And maybe it's going to be a byproduct of woke school Twitter. And like, you know, and, and if it is Good like, like change, comes so, like, I, 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 I'm about there are it. two points that I want. And one yeah. of them I tried to make earlier and I, I, I'm not really sure that I did, but, uh, well, one thing I kind of bristle at the comparison between this and like striking okay. because a striking is consensual and yeah. B striking has material outcomes. It works. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that mass arrests in New York city that last an afternoon have any material consequences aside from harming working class people. Like okay. it's not clear to me that, and I, and yeah. okay. So I want to make that point yep. because I think that there is a, a massive distinction there to be made. Mm -hmm. And you know, the other point is that the, the, the notion again, along David's lines of the attention economy, like this does climate changes in the news every single day. Not there enough. Are, but, Sorry. But, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. If I could just yeah, yeah. get, get this out there, yeah. climate change, is in the news every single day. There are just as many articles written about climate change every day as there will be if Extinction Rebellion gets 
arrested downtown. It's just that Extinction Rebellion becomes one article among many that will be published every single day instead of something else. And that's that's how a mass that's how the incredibly complex mass media attention economy that we have now works is that there's not you're not going to push out. You're just pushing out another climate change news story that would have been published either way. And I come to that from like a media studies perspective. I mean, that's how journalism works is that there's only so much room in the discourse topically that like you're not going to add to the like raw weight of conversations about climate change when it's already going on. That's why things like the die-ins in, you know, the 80s during the AIDS epidemic were so effective was because AIDS wasn't in the news. Nobody was talking about it. That's why the die-ins were effective. Hmm. It's one of the reasons that Occupy Wall Street was effective, was effective, because at the time, people weren't talking a great deal about this massive wealth inequality. Climate change to me is a totally different animal. Because it already is in the dominant discourse constantly. Yeah, but there's no solutions and there's no sense of real urgency about it. And nobody's doing anything. And I feel like the song from uh, Saving Sarah Marshall where um, fucking Russell Brand has like the satirical song where he's like, we've got to do something or whatever, you know, and it's about just like, I don't know, something. And like, that's where I think we're at, like as society like global society is like we don't know what the fuck to do it really can't be solved from this system this system created the problem of climate change we to solve this problem we need to break out of this system and so what does materially making an impact at us collectively breaking out of the system look like and I don't think people tend to really know and so I think that seeing action whether it's you know, street drama, bloody street drama about, you know, uh, mourning and representing the people who've already died by the hundreds of thousands from uh, climate change and the fact that billions more are going to. And it's visceral and it's, um, you know, it upsets people and it stops traffic and it's a pain in people's ass and like all of that. Like, it's only going to be more of a pain in people's ass. So figuring out the, the fact that we do need to get a complete system change. Like, I think we need eco-socialism. I think we need to get rid of nation states because I think that the last dregs of oil and the most punishing effects of climate change will be pushed by stronger nations onto weaker nations. I think we need to end capitalism and infinite growth because I don't think you can infinitely grow on a finite planet. And like, how do I materially do that? How do I get 8 billion people who are struggling to survive and the way that they're struggling to survive is the problem to do something differently myself included it's something that is almost impossible to do on an individual basis which is why i think you're incredibly justified in feeling the way that you do and i feel that way the vast majority of time and every so often i just feel like lashing out and this was a bit of lashing out and it's also you know a hope that it breeds more activity, whether it's ill-directed or not. And if it could be better directed, by all means, if there's a radder, more equitable, more uh, intersectional, more effective way, and people, you know, who call themselves anarchists and communists and everything else want to just like take over factories or like, you know, burn down a precinct, do it. 
Like we are in a fucking crisis. And so like, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the big distinction here is that I am not of the opinion that when you're in doubt of what you should do, doing anything is better than doing nothing. And I think that yeah, that's the that, real that, difference. That's in, fair. I think that that actually may just be the crux of criticisms around this whole thing in general yeah. is that there are, you know, there, there are kind of, when you, when you have no clue what you can possibly do to affect the kind of change you want, mm -hmm. you can either do literally anything just whatever is available to you, fuck the consequences, fuck the actual like mm -hmm. material utility of it, or you can do nothing. Yeah. And both of those are shitty. And so I think that that's probably the only way that you and I are going to come to resolution on this because yeah, there's really I, like, I am willing to own up to the fact that what I did is, has very shitty elements. Like, and I also, the, know, the, the I, other I, thing I, too know, is understand. like, it's not just about like, I think, I think, and you, you did this earlier, a tendency to dismiss it as making people late for work or making people late to like, pick up their kids. But mm -hmm. I do think that a lot of times these types of destructive, disruptive activities have more dire consequences than that. Um, but I don't want to like relitigate the whole thing because I'm... Well, I don't see it. So it, maybe I, I, I'm blind to it. Um, it seems like most of it, mostly it's people sending themselves to jail. And well, for a, a lot of like, people, like being late to your job means losing your job. Oh, yeah. And people are one lost job away from utter homelessness. Like that's not a small, you know, that's that's not a small consequence. Yeah, that's but, a big I mean, consequence. For... Like, I, within the context, though, of not a, only our own species, but just like the... the, the and the, if it this... had material gains, I would absolutely agree but with you. As As I'm pointing out, the material gains are to be arrived at after, uh, you know, system change. And so the question is like, do we literally do nothing? And, or what do we do? Like, do we join DSA? Did it. Doing it. Like, do we try to hold our government accountable when they're fucked up? Doing it. You know, like, uh, do we recycle? Doing it. Like, do we compost? You know, do we garden? Yes, 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 yes. But like, at the end of the day, I am more of a problem for this planet than a solution. Like I have a carbon footprint. I go to work. I, you know, uh, purchase things that, uh, you know, uh, come from like really uh, extracted, uh, exploited labor overseas because it's the only thing that I, I reasonably can. Um, and the solution, right, to the negative uh, impacts that I have could be just blowing my brains out, right? But if I blow my brains out, I'm not going to be able to have any materially beneficial, um, you know, effect on the system change that I think all three of us really agree is is necessary to be able to have any semblance of like hope of getting outside of this existential crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds hokey, but it's uh, um, absolutely true that, you know, like blowing your brains out doesn't really solve anything uh un unless you're a billionaire but um <laughs> you know it's a, it, it is a i i, I think allegedly a, allegedly you know, it, it, it's it's worth reiterating that like the system is set up not only to make you fail right it like it work it's working if one we're all divided two if trying to change the system divides you further right and three like um your dependency on capital flows uh make also makes you vulnerable to trying to better your own it makes you even more vulnerable when you try to better your conditions right because is it's an un undemocratic system so there is exactly one reason that i agreed to do this podcast with you guys yeah way back when back in back in 18 aught four when we decided we would do this show there's exactly one reason and it was because i knew that someday 
If I bided my time, you would let me do an episode on the rent wars. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) It really is like I, a, a while back I had this idea to do a podcast that was just history on, it was going to be called History on the Hudson. And it was just going to be basically kind of like a labor history podcast of the region. Um, and then I realized that I could come up with like maybe four episodes. Uh, so who knows? Maybe I'll do a four episode uh, series on that on my own time. But anyway, today we are going to talk about the anti-rent wars. Because it's a really fascinating little bit of history in our region that had... Uh, pretty major consequences for even a lot of like contemporary like tenants rights and um, it's also just like a badass epic story so yeah this is going to be part one of the rent wars because i got super bogged down in research and uh couldn't manage to fit all of it into one episode so two-parter coming at you i'm excited yeah so the anti-rent war also known as the helderberg war was a series of uprisings by tenants in upstate New York. It occurred between 1839 and 1845. And the tenants were demanding both widespread agrarian land reform, but also to be released from these super oppressive contracts that they were under um, by with, with their landlord, Stephen Van Rensselaer III. Oh, shit. Yeah. So... It the the a little bit of background on it. This this whole uprising began on the manor of Rensselaerwick, which basically comprised Albany County and Rensselaer County today, and it was about a seven hundred thousand acre estate. And so, is this the same Rensselaer family that like eventually bankrolled Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute? It is indeed one yeah. and the same. Yes, it is. So Rensselaerwick had around 10,000 tenant families. It was the largest <laughs> manor in Shit. the region. Yeah. I guess I guess we should say for people who don't live here that everything around here is named Rensselaer, yes. right? Yeah, like yeah. the county we live in is named Rensselaer. There's a town called to the Rensselaer. south of us yep. to, to the south of us called Rensselaer. We uh, all three of us went to uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic University. Institute. Sorry, Institute. What the fuck? <laughs> RPU? Yeah, yeah. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. It's RPI. Yeah, RPI. And uh, um, and there's like a dozens of streets and other shit just called this long Dutch name that no one can spell. And it only took me like four years to get good at spelling it. Yeah. yeah. R-E-N-S-S-E-L-A-E-R. By the time wanna... I graduated with my master's and PhD from RPI, I was pretty good at spelling it. Only took me six years. Nice. So, yeah. So these these tenants were subject to a very archaic legal form that was called the lease in fee. And this was a it was it was unique to the Hudson Mohawk region. And it's actually kind of a result of a lot of strange historical phenomena that I'll get into a bit. But the fact that it was this really weird legal status between these tenants and this landlord, Stephen Van Rensselaer III, was would kind of set the stage for a lot of the the difficulties that tenants were going to face and it, and it shaped a lot of New York politics for decades if not you know the next century to come and the tenants described their their situation prior to this revolt as feudal servitude interminable and they have like all of this really like lovely flowery old-timey language that's super dramatic which makes the story even more fun to tell Feudal servitude interminable, 
unhallowed bondage and voluntary slavery. As opposed to hallowed bondage. As opposed which to hallowed. Is dope. Right. Yes, yeah, people is. are really into that. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Warren's really into that. <laughs> yeah, she uh, she loves reference. being Jesus's little bitch. <laughs> so good. And so while the while this um, lease and fee system was like there was widespread hatred for it among the populace and also among like the government, um, it became it 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 proved to be nearly impossible to extinguish for a lot of interesting reasons. So the uprising begins on July 4th, 1839 in the village of Bern, which is quite near us, mm -hmm. when hundreds of angry tenants gather to declare independence from the Van Rensselaer Patroon. Patroon, think of it similar to like the, um, like the Patron systems in South, in South and Central America. Patroon, it was basically kind of a feudal style landlord tenant arrangement with a few weird legal eccentricities that we can talk about. And so these tenants, you know, they're not like what we think of as tenants, like people who live in a building, you know, and, and rent and, you know, go to a job or they, like, they, these are people who live in, live off of the land, right? They're like, primarily, yeah, they're farmers. They're, they're agrarian tenants. Um, so the, basically the relationship was that they would rent or lease this plot of land and they would work the land and they would pay their rent in kind through um, bushels of wheat as well as uh, every year they were required to provide four fat fowl, which mm. is a really good tongue twister that I might uh, incorporate into my vocal exercises later. Um, so yeah, so they're... It, despite the fact that they're not tenants in the way that we would think of them today, their actions actually did have a pretty significant impact on tenant law statewide. Oh, that, um, that still exists. Yes, that still exists. Hmm. And that impacted even people in hallowed New York City, believe it or not. So the, the Van Rensselaer estate started when uh, Killane Van Rensselaer was granted the charter for the area by the Dutch government in 1629. So, you know, it was a really long, long-lived estate. It was actually regranted to the family in perpetuity by the English after they after their conquest of the region in 1664. From the Dutch, right? From the Dutch, right. So that ends up leading to this interesting historical situation where, you know, you have this feudal model that comes from the Dutch who originally settled this region, the, the original white colonizers of the region, and then after the Dutch conquer Amsterdam, now known as New York, um, <clears throat> they regranted the charter to the Van Rensselaers. And so the model stayed largely the same. And because this was now a colonial ho holding, a lot of other laws that kept uh, feudalism kind of at bay in England didn't actually apply here because the states were a colony and not part of, you know, England proper. Hmm. So... The Dutch patroon model actually became the standard for colonial government in the Hudson Mohawk region after the British conquered because it was a really efficient uh, model for land use. And there was so much land that needed to be developed, you know, again, like air quotes developed, like these are colonizers. So anything that I say here is not like, you know, they're colonizers, they're pieces of shit. But when they say the land needs to be developed, they mean it needs to be turned into like farmable, arable land that can be made profitable. So Stephen Van Rensselaer, who was the eighth patroon in the line of Van Rensselaer's, was considered by all accounts to be a very benevolent, very kind, uh, very accommodating landlord. He's like the cool substitute teacher. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Or he's like like cool uncle or something. Okay, you know, yeah. like nice. yeah. Yeah, he'll give you a sip of beer. Right, right. Yeah. Or he, what's a weird thing that Dutch people drink? Like a a, a flagon. Yeah, a flagon of, of something. Yeah, or no, it's a uh schnapps maybe. Get some schnapps. No, that's German. I think that's German. I think the Dutch just drink beer. I think that's kind of what they're known for, isn't it? Hmm. That doesn't sound right to me. subterranean weirdos well it's not subterranean but you know like they live below sea level weird yeah uh, you've really got some weird ideas about the touch subterranean i've been there they do drink a lot of beer it's actually pretty good Uh, yeah like they i'm trying to remember you've been to dutch huh yeah i've been to the netherlands yeah uh den Haag. uh i visited a uh i had a co-worker uh from a small company we were we were forming um ghost wizard uh who uh his name peter edwards and he's sort of like one of the granddaddies of circuit bending and so that's that weird like uh musical instrument that i played for you that was like yeah uh, i didn't like that yeah, yeah that it's was sort cool. of like you know it raises the um the the dead and uh you know really con- conquers um the the soul of anybody who listens to it yeah it um, filled me with dread makes yeah. sense that people in the netherlands like that thing it's like, yeah. more, more like nether world am i right yeah, yeah. So, high-fiving myself yeah yeah you did high five yourself uh but yeah he moved to uh den Haag to do uh some like teaching of like experimental media and like electronic art and stuff um uh and i went and visited him for like 10 days, 11 days or something and just sort of skateboarded around. And it's pretty cool. One little thing that would be interesting to uh, tie back to our previous episode was that their infrastructure was all bricks and they would lay the bricks down really smoothly with like sand in between so that the ground wasn't uh, impermeable to water. And so the water would just go right between the bricks down through the sand. And like so pavers, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But they were like regular sized, you know, sort of red bricks, but they were so smooth. You could ride a skateboard on it and not be like, eating shit every 10 seconds like you do on our sidewalks wow but yeah so when i think with pavers you actually need that water to oh, be like kind of it. To, it keeps it settled yeah yeah, yeah. So, sorry. so so stephen van rensselaer the third from from whom from now on i will call him van rensselaer until his shit lord son takes over and then i'll call him van rensselaer he, he made it his goal in life to develop the estate Because at the time that he took over, despite the fact that it had been around for nearly 200 years, it was still largely like unsettled. It was mostly forested. And so he was really sort of a like patron of the whole region. He was on the canal board. He was largely responsible for the building of the Erie Canal, as well as a lot of other canals in in the area. He was the chancellor of the state university. He would ultimately found Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Oh, wow. It founded all the way back then. Yes. 1824, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. That is the code to the uh, basement library break room, if anybody's interested. 1824. I probably shouldn't be saying that. No, no, no. Say it. it. Get everyone to Easter egg. Get into that break room. (laughs) Take a break. Um, And Rensselaer was very successful at growing the estate. And there were a lot of reasons why he was so successful, much more so than other uh, estates at the time. Part of it was that there was already this massive influx of farmers migrating to the area coming from either further east or south. There were very high wheat prices at the time. So that was a really like, it was kind of a booming industry. Brown gold, they called it. They did. <laughs> That's not true. 
<laughs> and so these weren't uh, were mostly uh, native born, which is to say, born in the what is now the United States, like as opposed to immigrants from Europe, right? That were like m moving into the both. area. It ah, was okay. both. Yeah, it was both. Um, you know, a lot of people who were leaving indentured servitude were moving around in this area. I mean, at this well, it's at this point, it's in the 1820s, so that was mostly like not not as much in practice. But yeah, it was both. You know, native uh native born american citizens as well as immigrants interesting and then the other thing was that rensselaer wick was really close to markets as well as the waterway being right on the hudson made it a very enticing place to settle because you didn't have to move your wheat to market and you didn't have to move it to transit so you could fetch a much higher price for it and you know to cost less in transportation costs so and uh, Rensselaer boasted very generous terms to his servers and for early to settlers. And for early settlers, it was a really good deal. They didn't pay rent for the first seven years. The wheat prices were high. The soil was good. And the port being so nearby gave farmers a much higher income than those who were further inland or who were on other estates. And we should also say, like, probably at this time, if I'm getting my timeline right, both Troy itself is like the third richest uh, city in the country. And you have New York City straight down the Hudson. I think uh, Troy was richer much later yeah, like, okay. in so later. the 19th 1900s. century. So, okay. so like, uh, well, I think it was a late, it was like Gilded Age. Troy was much richer. All right. okay. Troy was barely even, um, Troy was basically a village at this point. Right. It's, it's even only Albany after... wasn't quite completed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, then... o it's only after the Erie Canal gets built that Troy gets goes nuts right yeah. yeah so this building was uh built likely like 1850-ish and uh from what people who had lived here previously did some historical research apparently this is one of the oldest buildings in uh the area like um that this was built by i think also the dutch um no danish uh and so it was danish immigrants and they had the the brewery and bar next door 41 sports bar um, and then this was the bakery. Mm -hmm. um, and so w the picture that they painted in my mind was like, this was all grazing land for like sheep and, and cattle and stuff. It um, largely was. I mean, even our house, which was built in 1875, there was nothing around it at that time. It was the only, it was barely even a street. There was like nothing Nothing else built nearby. It was like a dirt road up to like a cemetery in that house. The cemetery wasn't even there at that time. Uh, no, the, uh, it was further down, but like no, there were Civil War soldiers buried in um, uh, in the old Mount Ida. Yeah, portion. in old Mount Ida. Yeah, but we're but we're not on old Mount Ida. This is all super interesting to the listener <laughs> yeah, yeah. who wants to Sorry, know where yeah, the cemetery so, so is. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to do is, is paint a picture for, for local people that like, this was way back. This, this was, was way back. Yeah. This was not like much of this area. Even Albany was still like huge parts of Albany were still under construction while this was happening. Um, it was very manorial. It was very kind of like agrarian. It was a very agrarian area. So while the settlers were, were doing pretty good with these deals, Van Rensselaer was getting extremely rich, extremely rich. And he was, collect he was collecting a ton in rents, and he was, at the time, he was probably one of, if not the richest men in America. Um, his estimated wealth at the time would be, in today's numbers, about $100 billion. Whoa. Yeah. And then the 1819 panic hit. Yeah, right? Yeah. He was basically the Bezos of the time, yeah. So th th um, what happened in 1819? So in 1819, basically wheat prices totally crash. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of settlers moving out west uh, as transport gets better and better. More waterways are opening up. There's a lot more competition and wheat prices just like take a take a nosedive. And so Van Rensselaer's tenants can no longer pay their rent. And then in 1825, and this is part of the irony of the story, um, the Erie Canal, which Rensselaer had been a huge proponent of and had actually essentially got got it built. Um, it flooded eastern markets with super cheap wheat from the west, even worse than it had been prior. So now none of his tenants can pay their rent. At the same time that all of this is happening, because we don't have modern agricultural techniques at the times, farmers were just farming the land over and over and over again and getting reduced fertility over time. And then you also have all of these invasive species, uh, bugs, parasites that are destroying the wheat crops. So you have lots of things happening at this period, right? And this is happening between 1819 and the mid-1830s, which is um, higher competition. The Erie Canal opens up, lots of new wheat that's cheaper coming from the West, all of these parasites, these bugs. The land isn't as fertile as it used to be, and these tenants cannot pay their rents. But Van Rensselaer was like... You know, he wanted to be a nice guy. He wanted everybody to like him. He didn't want to be like the the mean old patroon who like kicked everybody off their land. So he allowed a lot of these rents to go into arrears. He allowed a lot of his tenants to just pay whatever they could here and there and not stay up to date on their debts. And this oppressive tenant system, one of the problems with it was that they had no means to make other money aside from growing wheat because... As they couldn't get credit so long as they owed Rensselaer past debt on their land, and they couldn't take out mortgages on land that they only leased. So they couldn't go into, say, like dairy farming or, you know, like pigs or any other thing that like and now a contemporary farmer, if, if you know, you couldn't grow one crop, you might be able to move to a different a different um, source thing, of income, different source of income. Yeah, maybe you could like, you know, start making some like artisanal cheeses or Dude, haunted hayrides haunted hayrides you know, <laughs> yeah 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 like uh, make, make you know get uh people coming up from uh, long island drunk on fancy ciders or something so the whole yeah. area is long on wheat <laughs> their portfolio is stuffed with the stuff yeah <laughs> and so by this point pretty much the damage is done and Van Rensselaer had brought a lot of it on himself. As president of the Canal Board, he was largely responsible for the completion of the Erie Canal, which flooded the markets with cheap wheat. He helped establish the New York Board of Agriculture, which developed all of these methods for improving farming yields. But because of the type of land tenure on the estate, tenants were prevented from even adopting a lot of these methods. They couldn't get credit to get new materials, new equipment, all of this shit, right? So I, I, I was just imagining like a... Uh, 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 what would it be like, uh, indignant dollars with James Kramer. And then he's like, like, he was, his guy, he's got like a bowler hat and like big suspenders and a handlebar mustache. And he's like smashing a steampunk button. That's like, sell on the wheat futures, my lads. <laughs> and there's like ticker tape, like flying out from all over the, the walls and stuff. And he's, he's, I'm telling you, the, the these donkey these donkey barges they're gonna go down the Erie Canal and they're gonna they're gonna give you uh, ten to one wheat prices out in Chicago. <laughs> that's that's what I'm imagining right yeah. now. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. You know, it's, like, I think Homer, that's accurate. Yeah, you know, that Homer Simpson's uh, that Homer Simpson 
uh, scene where he's just like thought bubble comes out and it's just like old timey cartoons with like a yeah a, 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 a monkey crashing a symbol. That's that's me, but with a old timey steampunk Jim Cramer. So then in 1824, Rensselaer endows Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And (laughs) Uh, I hate that place, actually. The the mission in his words was, and you guys will really enjoy this. The mission in his words was instructing the sons and daughters of farmers and mechanics in the application of science to common purposes of life. That actually sounds pretty dope. That's better than why not change the world? Because you could sort of turn to the institution and be like, you know why. Stop changing the world so (laughs) badly with all your like defense contractors and everything well that also explains why like our 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 uh rpi's uh crest is like a slide rule right there's like a slide right. rule in it yeah. and, and what what does it say like honesty and accuracy or something like something like dumb as shit like that i forgot what it was but yeah it's, and it's he, some so like old school geeky shit so he may have had these like noble intentions and yet he had himself cultivated a tenant class that was so desperately poor that they couldn't afford to send their sons and daughters to uh endowed university learn the application of science to common purposes of life like (laughs) bullshit mit which i think i just start no no uh, rpi is the first one it's the first one the first technical college in um, the united states eat it mit so it's so it's kind of fat. Like he, you clearly at this point you get this kind of portrait of a man of contradiction, right? Like yeah, he is, <laughs> yeah, he is engaged in this incredibly oppressive tenant system, and yet he's too much of a nice guy to actually make them pay all their rents. Um, he, you know, d- like pushed for the for all of these canals that ultimately ended up, you know, harming his estate to a great deal. He Cut sets up by this, wheat, yeah. <laughs> the Rensselaer store. <laughs> so you know. He was so concerned with his image as this, like, benevolent patroon. Basically, he was like a giant pussy. He wouldn't pursue their debts while he was alive. But then, upon his death, in his will, he, like, just basically was ruthless. And he set up this these trustees to go after all of his tenants' past debts. Wow. Um, immediately upon his death. Wow. Yeah. And so what would inspire that? Like the the idea to try and like hold down his Bezos-like empire for his prodigy? So yeah, he had 10 kids. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of seed. Yeah, I know, right? The wow. seed is strong. Um, <laughs> well, you figure, you know, like the, the wheat stock, you know, like there's like a bunch of seeds at the top there yeah yeah. those those are odb numbers yeah right so um actually so the tenants were under the impression that once he died because he had been this very benevolent lord that went and because things had gotten so bad in ways that you know threatened to bring down the entire manorial system itself they thought that he would expunge all of their debts upon his death and this was actually like a jubilee yeah right this was expected by most people in the region they were shocked when he didn't but he split his estate between his two most senior sons, um, Stephen the Fourth and William, and then he charged a team of trustees to collect all of the back rents and apply them to his debts. So at this point, I'll do what I should have done a while ago and uh, name my source for all of this research I've done, which is the anti-rent era in New York law and politics, eighteen thirty-nine to eighteen sixty-five, written by Charles McCurdy. It is quite boring. 
unless you really like agrarian law in the 19th century, which who doesn't, but, um, all about it. It is jam packed with information. But so, um, McCurdy puts it this way. He says, in effect, his will, Van Rensselaer's will called for the systematic impoverishment of people whose loyalty, even devotion, he had cultivated assiduously for more than 50 years. So, right, this man of contradiction that that we're seeing come to life and now death, and that's what causes this whole debacle. Bitch move. <laughs> so his two sons, uh, among whom he had divided his estate, uh, William Van Rensselaer was wealthy in his own right, and so he just paid the creditors off himself because he didn't want to piss off his new tenants. Stephen, however, was unable to do the same. He didn't have the liquidity or he was just like a selfish bastard or whatever it was. He probably also went long on wheat. He went long. Yeah. Very long. (laughs) (laughs) So long. Longest wheat. (laughs) Endowment. So he started pursuing the debts immediately. He sent out notices to all the tenants um, that he would be sending out a sheriff. And then he promptly sent, and this is all within like days of his father's death sent out sheriffs with writs to seize all of their assets, all of his tenants' assets, including their livestock, any tools and equipment they had, whatever crops they had, any other valuable possessions. Those are some inflammatory writs. Right? Oh, you have no idea how inflammatory. You can't put cheese on that or anything. (laughs) I don't don't like those writs. Writs crackers aren't as good as they used to be. Ooh. They're crumblier. That's, a, that's, that's a, an inflammatory. Yeah, that's inflammatory Ritz you take right even, there. You can't even put a piece of brie on a Ritz anymore. It it's, just, ooh, it look just, at me. It I, need, I need brie on my Ritz cracker. I need, my name's Brittany. I'm a class trader. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, shit. You're going to find out what happens to them. <laughs> so what about, what about these Ritz crackers? <laughs> so the tenants uh, immediately started assembling meetings all throughout Albany and Rensselaer County. And they developed demands for their for their new lord. The first was that he had to accept less than what they owed because there was no way they could pay all of these back back rents. The second was he had to renegotiate the existing leases so that the rents could be paid in proportion to what the land was able to produce. Because one farm that was able to produce, you know, however many bushels of wheat, another farm maybe wasn't able to produce that much, but they were all paying a flat rate. Mm. And the third was that he had to remove all of these restrictions on land use, which I'll get into in a minute. But there were a lot of restrictions on land use. And then four was that he had to sell his interest in their farms, which would ultimately turn their leases into mortgage mortgages. So in other words, he had to change it from this kind of um, perpetual extraction. Right. Yeah. There had to be a time limit on these leases. They had to be able to eventually own the land, which at this point they couldn't. So they made these uh, four reasonable demands and he was like, yeah, that seems fair. And then they all shook hands and that was it. Uh, He told them to go fuck themselves. Oh, okay. Oh, shit. I don't think he actually said go fuck yourselves, but he did the the, uh, 19th century aristocrat equivalent of telling them to go fuck themselves. Where you replace a lot of uh, uh, double S's with an F. Right. And uh, go fuck. Go fucketh thine selfeth. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Doth half too much prudence. (laughs) No, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Now I I, uh, I I want to stop you real quick because now I'm trying to understand like 
the, what this interaction would have looked like or felt like for the two uh, interlocutors. So yes. you have this, you know, wealthy son of an aristocrat who was himself the son of an aristocrat and, you know, one, basically the, the son of Bezos, one of them. They've owned this had, land for 300 years. Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. who, who you know, w with his endowment... <laughs> Went and uh, basically invested it in a bunch of uh, stuff such that he didn't have the liquidity or otherwise to be able to, uh, you know, be reasonable with, with his people. But he's still rich because he owns all this land and everything else. So he's got to be backed up by some type of like, you know, hired muscle, I'm sure. And, yeah. And then there's the, 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 the farmers, the tenants who, um, you know, just own their own labor and perhaps... Uh, a sense of ownership over their house and maybe tools or something and are like brolic, right? A deep sense of, yeah, of yeah. ownership over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and these, these, these lands were granted uh, in perpetuity also to their offspring. So these farmers, many of them, their, their families have been, you know, tending this land for generations. So they see they the built land their as, own houses. They, yeah. you know, yeah, their inheritance. They feel and, that they own this land. Yeah, yes. yeah, and that they understand that there's, you know, hypothetically some type of, you know, lord over there that we're going to give some amount of stuff. But you know, th their working relationship was. Yeah, but if you stiff this guy, he's, you know, he's, what is he going to do, right? And so that has been the operation for, what, the last decade or so of the time? The last several decades was, okay. well, because they had, when, when, when times were good, mm -hmm. things were okay. They were able to pay their rents. They were able to fulfill their, Fair. you know, fealty to their Lord. It was really only when they'd fallen on hard times because of the you know, decreasing fertility of the land and the canal and all of these other factors. Market going, forces. And then, going long on wheat. Yeah, going yeah. long on wheat. And then the death of Van Rensselaer III and him not um, expunging all of their debts that causes this whole thing to come to a head. Yeah, so head. And in terms of what the actual confrontation looked like, that's a really interesting question because that's kind of a... Um, I wasn't necessarily going to go into detail about this and I was just going to summarize it as he told them to fuck off. But what actually happened is they, so they have all of these meetings and all of these townships and they all get together and they talk it out and they come up with this list of four, um, like grievances, demands, whatever it is. And they go to the manor itself and he refuses to see them, refuses to talk to them. But he does say that he will, um, read a written statement from them. So then they go to the bar because that's what everybody did in that time was if you had to do something like yeah. if you were a man and you had like stuff to take care of, you went to the bar and you took care of it. And so they did, they wrote up this list of demands. Um, and then he told them with that to also fuck off, but that was actually like a formal. So it was an exchanging of papers that, you know, said, right. Like, yeah, exactly. And he actually posted this really, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have it here in my notes, but, um, maybe I should have, uh, take that down but he posted this he, he he posted god i'm such a like so talking in the age of the internet this is highly relatable right Where, like, every <laughs> single time posting. every every single time you go to like a uh, a boss or like someone who has control over you and you're like this is a problem that i have what do they do they tell you to put it in writing yeah. like whoa 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 you guys are getting a little too hot under the collar why don't you all go back, settle down, put it down rationally in a document, then give it to me, and we can talk about this. Well, like we adults. mentioned this in our last episode with Justin about the Amazon strikers right. that, yeah. like, they had gone through all the proper channels yeah, yeah. and submitted their, you know, complaints and whatever else. Yeah. Um, 
But even Martin Luther was a poster. Yeah. They're all posters. Yeah. But Van Rensselaer actually sent this really incendiary statement to the local press at the time, like calling these demands outrageous and calling them basically ingrates who had no sense of like uh, heritage and loyalty and how much my family has done for you for all of these generations going back to, you know, when the Dutch colonized this region and how dare you ask for these outrageous demands. And so on July 4th in 1839, Hundreds of anti-renters rallied and uh, drafted their um, Declaration of Independence from the Van Rensselaers. And yeah. they basically, they announced their intention to resist and what they called an unconditional submission to the will of one man elevated by an aristocratic law emanating from a foreign monarchy. Fuck yeah. Yes. So think about like when this is happening. This is part of what I love about the story. Think about when this is happening. This is like not that long after the Revolutionary War, mm -hmm. right? This is a time of extreme republicanism. And republicanism, not like the way that we think of mm -hmm. republicanism, but republicanism is like the republic, like the notion of kind of um, like rule by the, yeah. by the many. And, you know, that was... And later we'll get into like the whole, the, the, the Whigs versus the Democrats and this whole like political fight that's happening right now, which is, you know, at the time, the Democrats being a very, um, you know, limited executive branch, the only reason for government to exist is pretty much just to preserve property rights versus the Whigs, this very libertarian populist. Um, no, actually the Whigs no, were no, uh, the, the, the Democrats. Oh yeah. Like kind of. Yeah. Um, versus the Whigs who were this very sort of like roused about populist like very pro-business but also like pro-expansion like government expansion movement so and that'll come into play a little bit later once all of this kind of pops off but so the tenants like also one thing that i love about this is that they they swore to each other in this bar so you have this whole scene right it's the fourth of july everybody's drunk on hard cider they're all pissed off at their landlord they come up with these grievances like they get them down in writing and they swear to each other this pact of solidarity that no tenant will negotiate with the Van, the Van Rensselaers until all of them have their grievances Fuck yeah. redressed, right? Yeah. I am crying right now. <laughs> it's a little weird. That is so beautiful. <laughs> Do they take a blood oath like like in the movies where like they for, I I don't no, get, they just I don't, I don't get this sticks. trope where like you cut like the part that you like like you, you usually not like, cut yeah it's like, it's like usually right the whole before. thing with this we have to talk about this every time any piece of media it, shows people taking a blood oath by cutting their hands because it's always preceding something where like you're gonna need to use your hands a lot either yeah. battle or like I, just something where it's like like cut some other part of your body yeah yeah like, like just, the outside of your calf yeah. and then sort of tap calf. Yeah. So this is not a lot of people know this about David, but he has very sensitive hands. And I actually well, think that's why this is such a sticking point for you. Well, have you ever injured your hand? That shit oh takes God. forever to I've heal. injured my I was a bartender. <laughs> yeah. I've injured many of my hands many times. Yeah, it takes like months to heal. Well, the thing is like you, you know, like I, I have it. tiny childlike hands that's and not the true. same not amount true. of nerve endings. And so like whatever happens on my tiny hands. Honey, you is don't have like, tiny hands. It's like you know, like double what anyone yeah, look, our hands are like the same size. Like, right, I have very yeah, tiny hands. Small. All right, continue. <laughs> so 
All right. Van Rensselaer tells them to fuck off. And very shortly after, county sheriffs were charged with delivering these writs to the tenants. So basically what happens is these sheriffs get sent out with a piece of paper that says, uh, we're going to seize all of your property and use it, use the proceeds to pay your back rents. And I just want to read oh um, the undersheriff. So, so the county sheriff sends out his undersheriff to go deliver these rents and he gives this deposition after this whole happening. Um, and I want, I want to, I want to read it briefly. He says, I went to see Isaac Hungerford on his farm near Rensselaerville. And he asked me if I had others to serve. He told him that he had many to serve throughout the estate. And he goes on. Hungerford then said, I had better go home and be in some other business. He said, we have pledged ourselves that no officer shall travel through here to serve process for the patroon. He said, we have made up our minds to die, and we are ready to die in the cause of resisting any officer that should come there on the patroon's business. Eat shit, man. Yeah. As he said this to him, he brandished a large jackknife. So this fucking farmer is holding up this huge jackknife to this sheriff and saying, like, you send your boys on out here. We're ready to meet you with force. So the undersheriff carries on, goes about, he stops at the stops for the night at a tavern. And but that's where the people are <laughs> in the night. Anti-renters broke into the stable. They tore the wheels off his wagon. They nice. cut his harness into ribbons. Nice. And they sheared his horse's mane and tail. Oh, so it doesn't even really like hurt the horse, right? Yeah, it's no, just no. totally like, it's like we got knives. And also just like totally humiliating. Like now you have to go back into town. You have no wagon. You have yeah. no harness. You're walking a horse with no mane and no tail. Yeah. Humiliating for the horse too. Guys, guys, have you ever had this happen to you where you have to ride into town with a sheared mare and no, <laughs> and no care. Yeah. <laughs> so two weeks later, the tenants got news that the sheriff was soon going to dispatch another officer to deliver more writs. And an anti-renter sent him the following note. As the tenants were so friendly as to elect you to the office of sheriff, gratitude would say they ought to inform you of the perilous tour you were about commencing. They are through praying to their landlord like children to a parent. The tenants have organized themselves into a body and resolved not to pay any more rents until they can be redressed of their grievances. If you come out in your official capacity, you come against great strength. And I would not pledge for your safe return. You are so lucky that my boys are here holding me back. He's like, I have, I know Kraft Maga. I, like, I could just like totally destroy you right now. Yeah, it sounds like a warning that, um, I mean, especially we, given the hindsight that we have, um, I would heed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, this this uh, this guy uh, this sh is sheriff, right? Mm -hmm. So the sheriff. How deep is this sheriff rolling? Well, I'll tell you how deep he's rolling. He sent out an independent contractor. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. The name was, uh, the man was Daniel Leonard, who was described as an active and fearless man. So the sheriff sends out this guy to go deliver these writs because he was like, all right, my under sheriff got his horse sheared and I'm certainly not going out to fuck with these honkies. So you're going to need to go tell them that we're stealing all their shit. I got this active guy. He's going to go do it. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> active so, and fearless. He's so active. <laughs> yeah. So he's basically the transporter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, 
So Daniel Leonard, he goes out, he serves his first writ to Paul Vincent of Bern. Bern, like a lot of this happens in Bern, which is weird because Bern still exists. You don't yeah. ever hear about shit happening there, but. Some good hardcore shows. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, Something in the water. Yeah. <laughs> so he delivers his first writ to Paul Vincent of Bern and the tenant sends a boy along to sound the alarm to the other farms. And he doesn't give him any trouble, but he lets him know, like I'm sending my boy. Down the road, uh, Leonard goes about distributing more writs when suddenly he hears horns coming from every direction. And Vincent, the original farmer, comes galloping by on horseback shouting, If I wanted to save my life, I must make tracks as quick as possible for home. So you have horns blaring all around you. Like, you know, the last guy got threatened with a jackknife, got his horse all fucked up. Um, but he presses on because he is a man of action, active and fearless. <laughs> Jason Statham himself. <laughs> so then he gets to the farm of James Leggett. And when he tries to serve the writ, Leggett orders him off of his property. So Leonard, this contractor, he tosses the writ on the ground and starts to leave when Leggett uh, tells his son to go get his gun. So he retrieves the writ. And then starts to leave when Leggett and his son start following down the road, calling, calling him a scoundrel, traitor, rascal, and villain, and swearing to shoot a man in minute who came back on such business. So after that, Leonard was like, fuck that. I'm not doing any more of this shit. I'm going back to Albany. These, these farmers are crazy. They got horns. They got kids <sighs> with guns. So he stops into a tavern to take a rest. But... He was met with a mob and they ordered him to burn every Van Rensselaer writ. And this is what he says of the incident. They got a tar barrel, set fire to it. Then they took hold of me, led me out to the tar barrel and told me they would spare my life if I burned them. Seems reasonable. They then demanded that he buy them a round of drinks. Also reasonable. <laughs> Once their thirsts were quenched... They carried Leonard to each of the farms where he had delivered writs earlier in the day and made him burn those as well. Nice. They then took him to another tavern, demanding that he buy them more drinks. He bought them two rounds, and after each round, they ignited another tar barrel and boisterously debated whether to tar and feather him before finally, at daybreak, letting him go. Yeah, so, so far, they're being pretty saintly about this. Yeah. You know? Right. Like, so, no, but they haven't killed anybody. They've threatened, yeah. but, you know, they've cut some hair, they've stolen some wheels, and they've burned some paper. And mm -hmm. they got trashed on someone else's dime. Uh, yeah. Yeah. On state dime. So, yeah. it's and great. So, th this drunken mob is in, you know, really uh, good discipline. Absolutely. And actually, so the sheriff made three more attempts to deliver these writs. In the following really? weeks, yeah. Um, but every time they were met with larger and larger mobs of armed, drunk farmers. And the, first, first different contractors, like, keep getting it. Because I imagine sending... the first guy was like, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if they were contractors or if they were, like, more undersheriffs or who they were. They were they're described as officials. Again, a lot of the documentation for this case, the reason I read, like, a boring-ass law book is because they the lawyers have the best documentation. Like, nobody else. You can't really find good, like, solid historical documentation on a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, he sent three more, three more attempts to deliver these writs. The first time they were met with a mob of about 100. 
the second, a mob of about 300, and the third, 1,500 men wielding weapons and tar barrels, blowing horns and shouting down with rent. How do you wield a tar barrel? You gotta be really strong. Yeah. Super strong. Yeah. And it's on fire, so really, like... And careful. You have to be a man of action. <laughs> You're an active man. How has there, there not been a movie made about this, right? Right, like, yeah. I mean, I'm, I am literally on the edge of my seat. I, HBO, get on this, please. So the county sheriff at his wit's end, unable to get these rambunctious anti-renters uh, to heal, turns to the governor of New York, who at the time was William H. Seward. He was elected governor actually that year in January of 1839. And he was the first Whig governor, and I believe the last Whig governor of New York. And the Whigs are pretty interesting. Um, I may or may not get into them more next episode, depending on like how much we want to go down that rabbit hole. But he basically had a very, he had a very progressive agenda. He was super um, kind of, the, a lot of these anti-aristocratic ideals, his big, like his big legislative goal was to do all of these internal improvements in New York state. And the Whigs really wanted to spend tons and tons of money, like doing, like developing things, railroads, canals. So this is like the Bernie of their times? Kind of, but he didn't want to raise taxes. So they wanted to do it all through, um, like fees, like, like taxes on the services that they would provide and also through a lot of bonds. And that would later get them into a lot of trouble. And that would actually be a big problem for the anti-renters, but we'll talk about that in the next, in the next episode. So Seward was extremely sympathetic to the anti-renters and he was also a very shrewd politician. He knew that, um, the tenants were a really powerful voting block in that area. And so he didn't want to piss them off. And also he had only just, the the Whigs had taken New York by quite a lot in the last election, but it was their first super successful election. And this was at a time in history when parties would come and go in the blink of an eye. So losing the next election could mean like the death of your party. Hmm. Um, and ultimately it kind of would for the Whigs. So, so all these tenants were voters. They're, They're vo- all voters. Yeah. Ah. So Seward was sympathetic to the anti-renters, and he also knew that because they were an importing voting block, like he needed to not piss them off too much. But he also knew that he had this duty to uphold the law, and the law said that Stephen Van Rensselaer IV was owed his due by these tenants who owed all of this back rent. So his options were pretty much it basically just to dispatch military forces, but He didn't want to just do that. He didn't want a slaughter. He didn't want to go in and, you know, basically get a bunch of bad PR with all of these tenants. But he was also like, he was sincerely morally opposed to doing that. So he tried to appeal to the tenants through a public statement, which was put out through the press, in which he kind of gently admonished the tenants for all of this lawlessness, but also um, beseeched them basically to use the courts and the legislature to resolve their grievances. And he promised to them that he would use his power as the executive, as governor, to bring their complaints before the state legislature. So he's basically saying, you guys have some arguments to be made, but there are proper channels. Yes, that is exactly what he was saying. But unlike most politicians today that say, like, go through the proper channels, they're like, and I will help you do that. Yes. Yes. Like, I will be your champion, but you have to accept me as, as like, the your Sherpa through 
this, this yes. process. Yes, and he was, and yeah. he did, he did, um, and we'll talk about that next time a little bit more. But he he was. It, it, there's no reason, based on what I've read, to think that he was insincere. Yes, he was shrewd. Yes, he knew that they were voters, but he also did go to some pretty great lengths to try to help the anti-renters in their crusade. I mean, this is what what how we want politicians to behave really is like yeah it's cool to be shrewd as long as like you know you recognize me as uh, a constituent a constituent yeah and exactly do things on my behalf like yes that is, this how is another this interesting thing, thing about this whole era of time is that can you imagine that like you know 2000 let's just say out of all of these tenants you have maybe out of the whole of them we're talking like maybe 2500 maybe 3000 voters um, imagine like 3000 people being important enough that the governor of the whole state has to rearrange like the agenda for a legislative session because there are 3000 people in upstate New York who want a thing, you know, like that's a different time, right? Yeah. Like, like being a representative, being a constituent meant something very different at this time. Oh, also remember from... Uh, the episode where we talked about my essay about why socialists love trains. It's not until probably like, I guess, like 30 or 40 years after the events of the rent wars that you start getting enough train travel that you can have national politics, right? That you can have right. uh, these big rallies for the entire country. So really, like the governor of your state is like... Enormous, president you yeah know? yeah it's enormously more like influential to your life than 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 the president is well, and also at the time like, like you're like this is kind of at the the in the like jacksonian democracy like democracy period where like the federal government wasn't really supposed to be doing very much right yeah. um like they were really not like the kind of force in people's day-to-day -day lives that that you know, they are today. So, yeah, I mean, th that really only uh, existed um, after the Civil War. I mean, mm -hmm. like the the whole um, uh, the Gettysburg Address actually was like one of the first uh, times that the, you know, United States as a uh, like a nation, it was really, um, uh, you know, talked about and it's like power and, um, it, it was it was envisioned essentially mm -hmm. and a lot of that had to do with media as well and like in like the quickening of communication channels and you know like uh national politics being like published at local levels yeah there's a lot of also the gettysburg address was essentially the equivalent of a mic drop because at the time it was um, yes that like people would you know they didn't have tv they didn't have tivo you know they they uh they had uh people orders it and, was panned at the yeah, time it was given. And, yeah. And the orders uh, would, like, no joke, talk for, like, five hours. Right. So, yeah. like, you know. It's this like is a, a tweet. Yeah. So, like, yeah. We, we, we have a podcast, and sometimes we get admonished for it being, like, over an hour, you know, like an hour and a half, hour and 15 minutes or whatever. Um, and uh, But people would stand outside, Four, stand five, six, for five, seven six hours, hours yeah. and listen to some, like, bellicose dude just you know screaming and ranting it's about one of the this reasons that, that's i think that's probably why the gettysburg address continues because at the time it was not considered like people were freaked out by how short it was that was kind of disturbing i think to the general populace yeah. but it was also just not considered a particularly moving speech yeah. at the time um and now i think one of the reasons that it has such historical import is actually because it it like you know, 
Um, it was all killer, no filler. It was like, all killer, no filler. Yeah. You know, so if you if you which memorize is what Chris it, tells me at the end of every recording session, <laughs> and I promptly ignore him and include ninety nine point nine percent of what we recorded. Yeah, in all the but episodes. like, uh, yeah, no, it's uh, like, yeah. So it was an interesting time. So just thinking about like the pre Civil War uh, America is like totally befuddling to me. Like I try to think about all this. Like we were talking. It's um, a very confusing time too. Yeah. Like it's very the. It, it, like what the fuck does it mean to have somebody like threaten to sell your land and everything you own to pay for your debts? Like what is that to like so this to, is talk actually... to thousands of people? Like what does that mean? Like that suddenly these people who thought they were like maybe not landed gentry but like citizens, like landowners and like you know blah blah blah. Like what they would have to like take nothing but the shirt on their back and walk into the wilderness. Like this would be important uh, next time when we discuss kind of the, the legal context of all of this happening, but they like, we had only just gotten rid of debtors prisons at this point in American history, like very, like within a few years of all of this popping off, like we had only just decided via the Supreme court that you cannot put people in jail for owing you money. Mm. So yeah, it's, this is a totally different world, you know? Um, it's also funny to think of like how today it, it seems, uh, uh, like handed down from God that you either rent from someone who owns the property or you own property yourself and owe a mortgage. And that is maybe, uh, what, like, I guess 80 years old as like a system. And before that, there's a whole shit ton of different ways that you could occupy and lay claim to a, a piece of land or a building. Well, and this, this is just the, like one of these. Like, this instance was, yeah, like the very beginnings of trying to draw very firm boundaries yeah. between renting and owning land. Hmm. Um, and it sets a lot of really important legal and political precedents for how that works in New York state. And then ergo much of the nation would follow that as well. So because there's now like stuff coming back where like community land trusts and stuff where you technically lease at at like 99 years like access to a piece of land that is actually owned by some nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so Governor Seward's uh message to the anti-renters uh worked. It mollified them. That was the end of the um the Helderberg war. For now, we'll call it a, they kind of entered a cold war. They basically promised that there would be no further resistance to the sheriff. He could deliver all the writs that he wanted, but they weren't going to pay. Um, and they were going to wait for the governor to bring their claims before the legislature. So this got Seward into uh, doing a little bit of research. And he immediately ran into some pretty major problems when he was starting to investigate the tenants contracts because they weren't actually leases and they weren't rents they were kind of something they were like this weird um like a feudal relationship of like it was a feudal relationship but it was sort of it was very archaic and it was something that didn't really have they were in sort of like a legal gray zone in terms of land ownership so they were sent, they were grants in that all like contractually the the lord you know van rensselaer the the patroon granted them this land. So they owned the soil, right? Technically. But they also owed yearly rent that was paid in the form of bushels of wheat, 
the four fat fowls that we talked about. Um, there were also labor service requirements where they would have to like offer a, a strong bodied male with a sleigh and, you know, the ability to like, I don't know, drive a plow or whatever. Like they had to for have service. Months. Yeah. For the winter months and for the planting season. Um, so they would have to do these labor requirements. They also had no water or mineral rights, so they couldn't like set up their own sawmill, sawmill, or like mine anything on the property. What about wells? They they all had wells at this point, right? They weren't just collecting rainwater. Uh, they probably had wells. I don't know specifically about. I mean, presumably they had water rights enough to like water their crops, but they their fat fowls and then get their fat fowls. Um, but they weren't able to like set up sawmills. You know, like a water, like a water powered sawmill or anything mm-hmm. like that. So they didn't have like riverfront uh, access and ownership of the power. I think they were just restricted on because there were taxes on sawmills. Uh-huh. So I imagine that is part of it. Um, but I I know that there were like just certain developments on the land that they weren't allowed to make, and that the patroon maintained a right to make. So like the so like the patroon could come onto your land and set up his own mine. He could come. Uh, harvest the lumber he could come set up his own sawmill so like you owned the soil you were responsible for tilling it so that you could pay your rent but he could come on and basically just do whatever he could seize any improvements that you'd made upon the land if you built a house and the patroon wanted to take that house and you owed him rent he could just take that improvement on the land so yeah this really bizarre set of like rights that the patroon reserved despite the fact that you technically own the land and all of this was to establish fealty all of this right is a very it's a very feudal aristocratic arrangement like the the purpose of all these things is not only to enrich the patroon but also to kind of keep you in fealty and these um you're also responsible for paying all of the taxes and assessments and any fees that were placed upon your land by the state and all of these leases existed in perpetuity for the rest of your life and your children's lives and forever. Like there was no end to these leases. Mm. Now you could sell your lease, but you had to pay a quarter of the price of sell to the Patron. This is basically a multi-level marketing scheme. Yeah. <laughs> like you have to, like, and keep in mind, you can't, you can't once you, you sell it, you don't get any of those improvements that yeah. you've made on the land. Like you yeah. leave with nothing but three quarters of the cost of the land that is the only inheritance that you have from your parents. It's sort of like how modern landlords develop fealty with their renters by, you know, wandering into their apartments at any random hour and taking food from their fridge and cooking themselves a nice little snack and you know uh you know like taking some uh, vegetables from their garden in the back you know and uh being like oh hey i see you guys uh built a nice little uh breakfast nook in here um yeah that's staying that that's that's not wasn't on your lease you're not allowed to do it and they see like a cat and they're like that's 25 dollars a month Well, and so like Van Rensselaer the third, right, was the cool landlord who would be like, yeah, you can have your cat. It's cool. I mean, I just put that in the ad because, you know, like some cats, they're not good, but your cat seems cool. <laughs> Whereas like Stephen Van Rensselaer the fourth was like fucking no kicked your cat in the nuts and like shot it into the canal that his dad built. Spay new to your pets. Spay yeah. new to your pets. Yeah. We got to end inheritance, people. It's, it's yeah, a bad look. It's it a bad is. Look. It's a bad look. 
So in theory, none of the this this like bizarre um, type of ownership, it really sh- it shouldn't have been legal. It hadn't been practiced in England since the 1200s when Parliament put restrictions on many of these types of exploitative feudal contracts, um, including the what's called the alienation fee. This is the quarter that you had to pay anytime you sold your property. But after the American Revolution, um, these kind of these archaic tenant practices that had been handed down from the Dutch and signed off on the English after they conquered New York, um, they were left with no existing legal protections from these practices. So in effect, upstate New York was more feudal than medieval England had been. Cool. So because these Rensselaerwick land contracts ex- existed in such a gray area of law, Seward had this huge task before him. He's a new governor of a new party trying to seize power at the national level. And there was a lot on the line. And if he failed, his party could face losing the next election during an era when political parties came and went with the wind and a single loss could be the death of the Whigs. You might say they'd get their wig split. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nice. And what's worse, failure could mean reigniting a civil war that he had only just quenched. And that is where we will leave it for the anti-rent wars part one. Okay, so um, uh, good news, everyone. Good news, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, uh, morale at ICE detention facilities is super low. Turns out, uh, being the Gestapo is uh, is a bummer. Oh, yeah. they're not having a good time. Uh, well, I'm sure some some of them, some of those rat fuckers, really are having it. Having Probably a, ball a lot of them because uh, they're psychopaths that in, uh, enjoy and feed off of the suffering of others. But there are some uh, actual human beings that um, uh, are having regrets, and they they want to uh, uh, get out of this gang that they are now a part of uh, called ice and um uh the uh never again action network of atlanta uh, has uh set up a system where if you want to get out of ice uh they will provide a uh, job training and like recruitment or like you know like a networking system to get people out of ice and into another job i don't know if that's like mall cop or whatever but you know like i'd rather have you know your goofy ass like on a segway next to forever 21 wearing khaki shorts than on the border like you know separating families yeah like, or that's... in our communities just breaking down people's doors with battering rams and you know ripping people apart. yeah yeah and hey maybe these reformed gestapo folks they have dreams just like you or i maybe they want to be accountants or um baristas or you know or just not be you know like lined up against a wall you know right you know, yeah that like too that. Yeah, so you know, like they're uh, they're uh, the 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 group ne- never again action Atlanta. You know, it's part of the larger. Um, uh, is this mo- part of never again is now? Yeah, it's part of the larger movement of a uh, uh, American Jews to you know say that never again means no you know, more concentration. You no know, more concentration camps. No matter who's doing Period. them or who's being put in the camps. You know, uh, it doesn't have to just like literally be like a. Uh, uh, the the Holocaust number two, you know, like I, which it seems to be like how most people interpret that. But um, also, most people seem to think that the Holocaust is like everybody like rolled over 
and like opened their eyes and kind of stretched and like opened the blinds and looked outside and they were like, oh my God, there's a, the Holocaust is happening. Like that's not how, like that's, Well, that was know. what the experience was for You know, a lot it of started like, with just a few camps, right? Yeah, yeah, like, it, that's the way it, it, it was for a lot of the, um, the, the GIs from uh, the United States. Like when they like it yeah, was yeah because they weren't in Europe and right? they had no fucking idea yeah. like it wasn't something that uh, Germany was uh, propagandizing to the outside world as far as like um, you know most of the accounts go. Uh, yeah, all, all, they're just uh, these activists that are trying to get um, jobs for ICE agents to like come out, and so apparently as soon as they launched this, they instantly got one person, and they've been getting more every day it's becoming pretty popular no kidding yeah because people like don't want to do this i mean or at least it's it's extreme i mean you feel you figure you're like one i do believe this is true although i didn't look it up although i i do remember reading it before that um uh basically at least before this ramp up if you were in ice it meant that you didn't qualify for basically any other law enforcement position he's like they have they did, They have the lowest standards. So ICE is the fail sons of yeah. law enforcement. Yeah. So like, uh, if big you, oof. Yeah. So you like you couldn't qualify for anything else, and so you're in this job, and maybe you like went in with I don't know some sort of intention. I don't know, but you know that wasn't just like enthusiastic desire to like kill people, right? Although I yeah. Or at least, you know, maybe, maybe uh, like, there was an enthusiastic desire to uh, defend the nation and, like, you know, get out criminals. But the reality of the situation was, like, oh, shit. Like, mm -hmm. we're just ripping apart families, like, that, you know, just don't happen to have the right paperwork. Yeah, or you, or you thought that, you know, the defending the country would be driving around in a brand new F-150, like, yelling at people like they you know, double parked in the Walmart parking lot. But it turns out that's not actually what you do. Yeah, you instead, like, you know, you get training and you're, they're like, if this person hasn't filled out this form and we haven't uh, gotten to them in line, then they are technically illegal now and you can uh, use all necessary force or whatever. You know, so, uh, um, yeah. So it seems that uh, uh, people do definitely, like, want to get out of this job. And... You know, there is like some understandable pushback on this tactic that is, uh, you know, um, if you if it's so terrible, just leave. You know, like apparently, you know, Trump's economy is so good that yeah. like you can just quit this job and go somewhere else. Yeah, but Trump's economy is not so good. Yeah, and you exactly. Can't, like, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump's economy blows dicks. And, yeah, unless sucks. they all want to become podcasters and they yeah. can go fuck themselves as they do because it's uh, competitive enough out here. But, yeah. but being, uh, you know, like an organization that's very, very opposed to the purpose and work of this other organization, you know, so I'm talking about um, uh, Never Again and, and ICE. Um, this is an interesting, uh, you know, display of compassion and and, you know, um, solidarity as as humans, like and being like, hey, like, like we want to help you do better. Like, and mm -hmm. I don't know, I I find it inspiring. Yeah, I I, I like the idea of uh, on the one hand saying like like we will not stand for what you're doing, and we will uh, confront it in all ways possible. Uh, and if you if you really don't want to do this, here's the way out. Like, and if you don't take this way out, 
then it is very clear that uh, the things that we will do to stop you are justified because you are now you were given the option not to and you're doing it anyway. So I, I think if anything that makes if, if if for no other reason, you know, do this tactic so that you are better prepared to defend yourself uh, rhetorically with whatever you do to stop it. Right. Is that like all these people had an, you know, just following orders was never a good uh, excuse. And now you could even say you didn't even have to be in the position to follow these orders in the first place. Yeah. So is the next move to set up a Facebook group, uh, storm the camps, they can't stop us all? <laughs> right? I, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, I'd not be that, rad if like yeah. 200 million people signed up to that. Yeah. And that was a big meme at the time that the Storm Area 51 shit was going on. It was like, what if we stormed these concentration camps instead and saved all the people inside them? Yeah, that, I mean, th- there was that... It's not r- as memeable as... Yeah. And I, not and a lot of people showed up sex, to Area so. 51... Well, didn't right like there wasn't no, that many people no yeah. it turns out getting there is expensive that's why yeah. only rich people go to burning man now and there yeah. was there was willem von spronson um yeah. who uh you know stormed the camp uh single-handedly uh, and was shot dead um uh on the site um and he, he, didn't he throw a well i i don't know if he actually threw it he, but he brought a bunch of like essentially like molotov cocktails molotov, yeah. and he was trying to incite a fire uh on some externally stored propane tanks with the idea that i guess you know they'd spend some modicum of respect to human rights and dignity to like keep people from dying in the fire and like evacuate it and thus close the camp um but yeah, no, he was killed immediately. And so, uh, you know, friends of his were saying like, you know, this was essentially, uh, the, the equivalent of like a, um, uh, a self-immolation, like sort of suicide by cop, but with the very, um, explicit message, um, of, you know, that this thing was worth dying for, mm-hmm. even if it ended up being symbolic simply because it was just one person. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for like the Never Again network. I think that it's pretty um, cool, the shit they do. I think this is really cool. I realize like there, I think that this is one of those instances where there's a difference between like trying to be friends with Nazis and actually trying to do palliative care for these people who have found themselves as like state agent oppressors. And I think it's really like heartening um, move on their part to do this work yeah i i think the the theme across this whole episode is just like we have to find what works and and what works is going to be a lot of different things and it's always going to be controversial because these are really sensitive issues yeah well a lot of stuff just needs to um prove itself yeah right you have to there has to be like a uh propaganda by the deed that you know you do something and when it and when it uh and define what works means and then when it does work you know you you repeat it yeah and 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 also recognize the limits of that tactic and fit it into a larger strategy so you guys were both involved with occupy right and i remember very much at that time in my life um like when the camps were all militaristically shut down with pepper spray and horses and and ripped apart and how um you know the nation had sort of grown bored and tired of it and what basically turned a blind eye to like the police brutality that actually like finally shut it down all the way across the country i remember feeling like really disheartened and that it was a waste of a lot of time and effort that i had personally put in um and 
I've been thinking about it more over the last eight years and in, you know, relation to the work that I've been, you know, doing with Extinction Rebellion and, you know, generally a lot of my other activism and uh, at its peak, like during the West Coast port shutdown, there was about 35,000 people in the country that were involved directly in Occupy. Um, so that works out to be 0.01% of the population. So this is, you know, a hundredth to a three hundredth or a, a one over 300 of what people think, you know, creates that system change. Um, and the media and the narrative and everything else uh, was really written in such a way that at the time um, it was dismissed as fringe elements, uh, radicals in the society and, you know, idealists and, you know, utopians or whatever. What and, do they want? They yeah, don't have any demand. But yeah. then you had the election uh, campaign of Bernie Sanders, and he basically adopted the Occupy platform almost entirely. And he got 46% of the Democratic electorate uh, vote, which is tens of millions of people. So we're talking double digit percentages of the American population. On top of that, Occupy raised up a whole new generation of activists who learned, who like met with each other, who networked, who learned strategies, who learned tactics. Like, you know, there was a lot that, uh, I, I think Occupy ultimately accomplished even more than it could have possibly imagined just by creating all those inroads and all of that knowledge sharing. And, you know, then of course leading to like actual change at a national level of politics but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it, i i think it's it's wild to say that like I, that occupy like did, never did anything right because it was like oh did they not like stop did we not stop capitalism yeah of course not but it yeah it created this thousands of net of new networks and friendships and yeah. relationships and that, roadways were blocked yeah yeah you know but, but I think things more, were disrupted yeah like, th and uh, and we didn't know what was going to work and right. or how it works really right. and i think what the the answer of how it works is that it it uh yeah it radicalized a generation and then like after the and then after that you have a uh black lives matter that did a bunch of stuff and was also like shut down perhaps even more severely yes. and and you can't uh yeah and uh, shut things down even more severely yeah, like yeah, highways yeah. were blocked yeah, like absolutely. flows were stopped and you can't you you can't uh tell me that uh the fbi didn't kill a lot of those uh blm activists these are just like yeah. seem to like all of a sudden be found dead in cars anyway uh i, I I'm, I'm glad that we uh, that we did this episode i think we got a lot of uh, stuff out of this and yeah. uh and a really a uh, solid theme for such a uh different topics i, I think uh yeah we got we got a lot so uh uh how can everyone find us on the worldwide internets well they can find us on twitter Pod. <laughs> <laughs> it's episode 16 we're still not good All at right. this let's try it let's try it again let's try it again All right. you can find us on twitter ironweeds pod you can find us on instagram Ironweeds Pod. You can send us an email. Ironweedspod at, at gmail.com. And you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash ironweeds. And if you buy us a coffee, we will send you some tasty, tasty bonus content. Um, you can also rate and review us on the podcast delivery mechanism platform delivery service of your choice. And if you screenshot that to us, send us an email we'll also send you some good stuff 
Not or just not just, just fiat do it. currency. Bar- barter works for us also. Yeah. It barter in the attention economy. Or just do it because it's a nice thing to do and you won't get anything out of it. But you will get something out of it. But you could also just do it because it's a nice thing to do and it does really, really help us. We jumped up to number 64. I want us to go back down five. Yeah. But we did... Sit there for a minute and then go back up to number one. We for... did jump up to number 64, right? In news? Yes. Yeah, American news commentary on Chartable. Uh, not that people pay a lot of attention to that, but... Um... We don't, certainly not. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Um, like you were saying, we're, we're gaining more Twitter followers than losing them. And, um, you know, this is just such a pleasure to do. Yeah, uh, I love the both of you very much, and this is a lot of fun. And uh, I, you know, I really appreciate every time somebody emails us or buys us coffee or um, you know corrects some science that I've gotten wrong. And uh, yeah, like I'm planning on just keeping chugging along, and yeah. really appreciate everybody. And so, who's rating, listening. interviewing us, and sharing the show with your friends and family really helps us out a lot. And we're very, very grateful to you for doing that. All right, we'll see you next week. Yes, we will. Part two of the Rent Wars (laughs) in a world. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.